Well, as we move closer and closer to the Christmas holiday, we also move closer and closer to the new year, which if uh, you're like many, the, the new year in this turn of the calendar provides new motivation, new resolve to change our behavior, mostly to rid ourselves of the guilt experienced in this month of overeating and overspending. But with the calendar flip, that all changes, of course, because with that becomes a new resolve to better ourselves, to decrease our waistline and increase our bank accounts. Perhaps you've already started considering what you will do in January. I know it's been a bit of a custom for me to do some sort of cleanse diet for the last few years to varying degrees of success, uh, however you might measure success in, in these areas. Um, and, and as much as I think back over the years and, and the varied success of these diets, the, the truth is, is that I am a much bigger man than I was uh, years ago, hopefully in more ways than one. But as I look at old pictures, certainly in one way uh, to be sure. How is it that we can be so motivated to change in one moment? and yet see that motivation wane so quickly as the days and the weeks and the months go by? How is it that we can desire something so much and then something that we desire greater, in my case, carbs, comes along and totally eclipses those good desires that we once had? The reality is, is that if we could resolve to fix our unhealthy practices, we wouldn't have to re-up every year. And yet, we do. Each year, our resolutions generally look the same as the year before. Sometimes we even intensify them to make up, only to do it again year after year after year. But this doesn't just go for our uh, dietary habits, does it? I think we often view spiritual progress in, in, in similar ways. Perhaps this will be the year where you finally get past Leviticus and your yearly Bible reading plan. Perhaps your desires and goals are a little bit more self-reflective. Maybe this is the year where you'll be more content with life. It's easier in January after we've opened all of our Christmas gifts. Maybe this is the year where I'll be more patient. Maybe this is the year where I finally just do better at life. The reality is, it is it's not our lack of motivation or resolve that holds us back. According to scripture, it's something far more profound, something far, far deeper than just a lack of motivation. What holds us back is, is bondage that we are bound to sin, that we are bound to evil desires. And, and Jesus says that for those who sin, you are a slave to sin. And if we are enslaved to another master, then we need something far more powerful than resolution. We need something far more powerful than motivation to break us free this Christmas and this new year. 
Well, in our prophecy this morning, the the prophet Isaiah comes to a nation in bondage. One speaking much about this bondage there into another nation under Babylon, but even that, that bondage has come about because of a far more profound bondage, the nation's bondage to their own sin and their own desires. Certainly is, Israel has had moments of great resolve. All this we will do, they once said in response to God's command. And yet they find themselves returning to their own idols and now once again separated from God and as you read through Isaiah, thinking perhaps this is the last time that they've done it this time. Well, it is this backdrop that frames this prophecy this morning in Isaiah 61. This prophecy of one who will come and preach, who will come and proclaim a message of good news. One who has been anointed by God to say something And that this declaration will bring about a different reality. And so I want to consider this prophecy from Isaiah 61 this morning under three headings. And the first is a jubilee sermon. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me, it begins, to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, Isaiah prophesies about one who is coming, who, who will proclaim, who will announce all of these wonderful things, a sermon filled with good news that changes the situation of those who hear it rightly. And as we consider the different things that will change, we we hear that there will be good news to the poor. There will be freedom. There will be liberty to those who are found in bondage. Certainly, this would be an encouraging message to God's people as they are in bondage. But what might come to mind here is Israel's own law considering the year of Jubilee. In fact, the prophet announces that, that this one who comes will announce the year of the Lord's favor. What exactly is this year of the Lord's favor? What exactly is the year of Jubilee? Well, we know as we we heard this morning in the reading of the law and our confession that Israel is commanded to keep weekly Sabbath. They are to set aside the seventh day and rest from their labors. Well, they're also every seven years called to Sabbath the land. That is, give the land itself rest because all, the, all of the uh, earth is the Lord's, and, and, and God promises that as they let the land rest for a full year, that he will provide. And this, this is to happen every seven years. No pruning, no gathering, no farming, no vine dressing. It is a Sabbath rest for the land. Well, every seven times seven years, every 49 years, on the, on the 50th year, there would be this year of great jubilee where where everything rests, so to speak. People would return from slavery if they had been sold into or sold themselves into indentured servitude, they'd be released. Land would be returned to its original family owners. All debts would be forgiven. This, this year of Jubilee, every 50th year, would be the great equalizer in Israel 
for those that were poor in great debt or had lost their land for whatever reason, or for those who were forced into some sort of servitude, all debts would be paid. Everything would be forgiven. And this year of Jubilee would be a year of freedom, a year of liberty, a year where all things were set to rights. And you'll notice in our passage that this year of liberty is also a a day of vengeance for the Lord. If you think about it, for those who had gotten rich off of the oppression of the poor, this would be the natural outcome of a year of jubilee. All that wealth that they had attained off of the backs of others would be forgiven. So not great news for those who had made their wealth from unjust purposes or who had amassed land because of the misfortunes of others. But for the poor, for the brokenhearted, for the afflicted, Leviticus 25 says this, On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. You'll notice that in this year of Jubilee, according to both Leviticus and our prophecy in Isaiah, that there's far more than just economic reparation going on here. That there's ethical repair also. It's interesting as you read the law that the first day of Jubilee when this trumpet blast to announce this day of freedom lands on the day of atonement. This, this day where a yearly sacrifice would be given for the sake of the temple to cleanse it, but also where all of the sins of the people would be placed upon a scapegoat and sent out into the wilderness where they would be separated from their sins. Isaiah picks up on both of these realities in the prophecy, this year of Jubilee, but also the ethical benefits of the Day of Atonement. Verse 7, he says, Instead of your shame, you shall have a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion, and they shall have everlasting joy. The prophet announces of one who will come and preach a message of jubilee, but also of cleansing, of, of freedom, not only from worldly oppressors, but the realities of sin. But as Isaiah continues, we see that this is no ordinary year of jubilee. This is no ordinary day of atonement. This year extends beyond the borders of Israel, all the way to Babylon, where Israel will find themselves in exile. There will not only be a resetting, but a a rebuilding of the rubble of Jerusalem, the prophet says. A a rebuilding of the worshiping life of Israel. To, To such an extent that the nations themselves that once held Israel captive will become servants to God's people. A complete reversal of fortunes. This sermon, this proclamation, not not only announces repair, but but recreation. A complete new situation. It will make God's people what they were always meant to be. 
as verse 7 says, a, a holy priesthood. They will be considered ministers unto God. This was always God's design for Israel. From their very inception at Mount Sinai, he declares to them, you shall be my treasured possession. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. It was always God's intent for his people that they might be ministers unto God and ministers to the nations on God's behalf. But it goes even further back than that, doesn't it? I mean, it's the intent of creation, that God would create a, a holy people for his possession, that they might be priests in this holy garden, ministers to the world, expanding God's image through all of creation. Well, you notice Isaiah picks up on this creation theme as well in the prophecy, that he will make his people into righteous plants sprouting forth in this holy garden. He uses language of Israel's inception, but, but, but also ties back this jubilee to creation itself. I mean, I, Isaiah is prophesying nothing less than a restoration of all the cosmos, all creation being restored, not only to Israel's original place in the land, but, but the whole world being restored. And that's what Isaiah is, is prophesying here. He's announcing a new creation. But as we find, as, as God's people will return from their exile... That experience is far from a new creation experience. It doesn't seem to be what Isaiah is prophesying here. And so we have to ask, one, is this sermon even true? And two, when, when does it come about if it is true? Well, at first we have a jubilee sermon. Next we see the preacher arriving. So a few hundred years down the road, generations after Isaiah had uttered this prophecy in a little town called Nazareth, a visiting rabbi went to synagogue on the Sabbath day. And as it was the custom, this visiting rabbi would, would do the preaching that, that morning. And by chance, uh, the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. Perhaps it was uh, Advent. And he unrolled this lengthy and, and very heavy document and he found, mind you, without any headings or chapter markings or verse annotations, this very passage. And, and this rabbi begins to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as the rabbi finished the Old Testament reading for that morning, he, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the rabbi begins to preach. And he preaches thus, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You have to think about being there and hearing this. I mean, one, you, the congregation was certainly thrilled at the length of Jesus' sermon. 
But far more importantly, consider what Jesus is saying. This scripture written generations ago, announcing a preacher that would come proclaiming freedom from bondage. Now in your hearing, this scripture is accomplished. This scripture is fulfilled. You can almost imagine the the record scratching in the synagogue as people stop and begin to think about this. On the one hand, Luke tells us that they marveled at his words. They spoke well of him, but but they also also begin to question, wait, isn't this Joseph's son? (laughs) How can this be the preacher that Isaiah prophesied of so long ago? And no doubt in the coming days, they would likely have far more questions, looking around and wondering how this thing is fulfilled. The Romans are still ruling. Their homeland is not their own. When does this great rebuilding project begin? Is Jesus lying here? Is this truth? Is it is it figurative? What exactly is he claiming? His, his own cousin, John the Baptist, when he was disappointed by these things not being fulfilled in the way that he had expected, says, are you the one or should we wait for another? And we can relate to this, can't we? We hear Jesus' words about who we are, about what he has accomplished and applied to us, And then we look in the mirror and say, how can this be? Are these promises really real? Are they really for us? If death is defeated, why do people keep dying? If sin has been conquered, why am I still so sinful? If we have every spiritual blessing, why does God often seem so far away? And Paul announces that we are new creation. But if that is so, why do we remain in these bodies of death? There are poor among us. There are brokenhearted ones. There are those who are captive to sin. I mean, if if this year of forgiveness and this year of cleansing, this year of jubilee has really come according to what Jesus says, how and why do we still lack the resolve to improve our own lives? A friend uh, this week sent me this inspirational piece of artwork, and it's this beautiful sunset landscape with with clouds and just a really, really beautiful picture. And, And over the top, it's written, you are not the same person you were a year ago. And right below it, it says, you're even worse now. (laughs) But isn't that often how we feel about our experience? As we re-up on our New Year's resolutions, why why do they have to be more intense this year? Well, because we screwed it up last year. Life really does feel this way. Forget progress. Many of us would just settle for not rolling backwards. 
The reality is, is that as we read prophecies like Isaiah's, so often the words that jump off the page are those like verse eight, for I the Lord love justice. I hate robbery. I hate wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. That's the stuff that connects with us <laughs> because we look at ourselves and those words are indeed terrifying. As we've confessed these last weeks, we do engage in robbery, robbing our neighbor by lacking generosity, by lacking compassion, robbing God of the worship due his name by loving ourselves more than we love him. The difficulty with reading verses like this, where Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of all of these things, or or many other passages in the Bible where Jesus says that he has accomplished these works, is they're, they're not difficult because they're hard to understand. They're difficult because they just don't, they don't square with our experience. How can these b- both realities be true? That Jesus has accomplished this year of Jubilee and I still seem so enslaved to my sin. Well, as we, as we have reflected on the last few weeks, this really is an Advent reality, isn't it? <clears throat> Living between this true inauguration, this true announcing, this true beginning of new creation, but awaiting what it will finally be like, awaiting its consummation. But just because it's not fully here doesn't mean it's not fully true, which is why the New Testament authors are constantly calling us to look away from what we experience here. If you're spending your time looking in the mirror to see God, it's the wrong place to find him. Constantly calling us to look away from ourselves to where our true lives really are. To look with eyes of faith, faith that comes by hearing. Hearing this jubilee message that Jesus preaches to us today. And even the fact that, this cons- that we're still waiting the consummation of all of these things, e- even that is good news for us. You'll notice if you look at Luke 4 and Jesus quoting Isaiah 61, he, he stops short of saying that this is the day of the Lord's vengeance. Why, why is that? We find in Jesus' earthly ministry that the word became flesh on that first Christmas, not to judge the world, not to bring about God's vengeance, but he comes clothed in garments of salvation that the world through him might be saved. He he delays vengeance for our sake. Yes, the day of vengeance is coming. It will arrive at the end of time and And that'll be the end of the line for many, but God waits. As Peter says, his patience to us is salvation. He waits for us. He waits for those that we pray for so ardently who have not come to faith. But he is coming. And even though it seems so far away, it's no doubt true because he has accomplished 
what he set out to accomplish. And finally, this morning, I want to consider that this morning, that this preacher is also a priest. The passage in Isaiah speaks of one who will preach salvation. It says that he will be adorned like a bridegroom, and this bridegroom will be anointed as a priest. He, he will look like a priest. He will wear priestly vestments. And the passage tells us that this priest will bring about an everlasting covenant. And when we consider the year of Jubilee and its connection with the Day of Atonement, we see how this all comes together quite beautifully. Jesus really is Isaiah's preacher. But we find that he is far more than just a preacher. He does travel around. He announces good news to the poor. He announces sight for the blind. He announces freedom for those who are held captive. But as we see in Isaiah 61, this preacher is also a covenant-making priest. One who will offer a once-and-for-all sacrifice for those lacking the resolve to save themselves. One who will not only announce freedom from sin, but will make a saving covenant. That is, he'll make an oath to do all the work himself, which is what Isaiah promises. The thing that is so shocking that Isaiah 61 doesn't announce, but, but Isaiah does announce elsewhere, is that this preacher who is a bridegroom who is also a priest is also the sacrifice. And Hebrews 9 brings these realities together so beautifully. Speaking of the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement that must happen every year, the author of the Hebrews says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he, in, in, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, this securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. He comes, he preaches good news, he shows himself to be the great high priest, and this high priest offers the only sacrifice that can atone for the sins of the world his very righteous and perfect self. And in so doing, he mediates for us a saving covenant, one that cannot be broken. He accomplishes the whole thing before sitting down at the right hand of God, having announced but also having accomplished your jubilee, your freedom from sin and death and the devil and as if the author to the Hebrews was preaching at Advent, he ends the chapter like this. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, that's already been dealt with. But to save those who eagerly await him. Yes, we do find ourselves in waiting, living between two Advents. But even in this time, Jesus has fulfilled and announced your jubilee. Perhaps this day, this message of salvation is, is new to you. Well, it's for you as well. This message of freedom 
Today is the day of salvation. This is the year of Jubilee. And for those who believe, it really has been announced and it really has been accomplished. It really has been fulfilled, even when you can't see it. These are by faith realities until one day they will be by sight realities. But that doesn't make them any less true. Jesus isn't lying. He really is the preacher. And he really is preaching Jubilee to us even today for those that would believe in him. Even in this life that is so advental as we think about the world and ourselves not as they should be. So many of the realities seem so distant, so, so, so distant to us, but, but we can be assured that they have been accomplished. And Jesus promises, I mean, you're, you're going to have trouble, right? But he has overcome this world. And in doing so, he has set you free. And if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. And the fact that you can't always see it is, is not nearly as important as the fact that this is how God sees it. Your debt is paid. Your life is new. For if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Instead of shame, you have received a double portion. Instead of dishonor, rejoicing. And it had nothing to do with your resolve. Thank God. But because someone else has the perfect resolve to accomplish it on your behalf. And he who has begun this good work in you by dealing with sin will be faithful to come again as you wait, even now, for his second coming. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray.